Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. How are you? I'm great. How been are you? Good. A little burnt out. Oh. Been researching long all long day. Oh. Working all week. Yeah. It has been a long week. I feel like I've been really tired all week. Yeah. Even though I've been sleeping, surprisingly, which I don't do. You don't sleep. <laughs> I <yet>. never sleep. <laughs> it's amazing to me how you function sometimes, but... You know. I know. I just, like, lay in bed and, like, stare at the ceiling, and then I look at my phone, and I'm like, oh, it's 6 a.m. Love that. Wow. And then I sleep for like maybe an hour and then I'm like, oh, time to get up. Love that. <laughs> right then. <laughs> right then. That's good. Yeah. So I don't know. It's been a tiring week, but you know, we're doing the damn thing. We trying sure to get are. the episodes out. Yeah. Making them interesting or at least trying to. Trying to. But yeah. anyway, I um, was going to start this week's episode out by um, reading another ghost story that we somehow left out of our listeners episode last week. Okay, listen to this shit. I put this ghost story first on the Google Doc that we were listening or that we were reading off of. And for some reason, I don't know how, it disappeared off of the Google Doc. Just poof, gone. Mm -hmm. Who knows? So I DM'd this person that sent it in in like a frenzy. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I really wanted to include it because I really liked it. And blah, blah, blah. I'm going to read it at the top. And I'm really sorry, Jake, I'm not going to read it at the top, but I promise we're going to do a um, listener's tale episode really soon because we actually got a lot more listener's tales coming in. So we're going to do one really soon. And there's some extra content. Extra content. Yeah, I don't know. I'm going with the internet is haunted. I think his story is haunted because yeah. it was a good, it was a really good story and I'm excited to tell it. Yeah, could but- you imagine you put it on another Google Doc and it's just not there? Yeah, and we go to read <laughs> exactly. It. We're like, oh. we'll be like, okay, it's this happened twice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or also, I'm gonna go in and delete it. <laughs> oh, great. Well, now we know it's an inside job, Jake. <laughs> Cancel Alex. Um, but also, I wanted to say, if you do um, send in your stories, which don't have to be ghost stories, by the way, they can be anything. Send them to our email address, notodaypodcast at gmail dot com, because um, sending them to our DMs, like at this point, is gonna get a little bit jumbled. So send it to our Gmail. Give us a subject line. It'll just make it a lot easier for us to keep them organized, and we can, you know, put them in our listener episodes, and it'll be great. So yes. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Please and thank you. (laughs) Please and thank you so much. But yeah, I wanted to jump into this one because this is our Halloween special. Damn. Mm -hmm. It's a big one. Yeah. Big, big, big story. How many pages was your source? So my one and only source as of right now for part one, because this will be a two-parter, was the book Perfect Victim, written by Christine McGuire and Carla Norton. And the book was just over 400 pages, like 35 chapters. Very good book. Highly recommend if you want to find out more information after I tell you the story. But yeah, it is a intense story. So I wanted to start out by giving just a general trigger warning. If you are claustrophobic or, you know, it it does involve also sexual assault. So just a general trigger warning. This story is intense. So yeah, but it is a crazy story. Like when I was reading this book, I it doesn't even f- don't smirk at me when I say crazy. <laughs> you bitch. <laughs> anyway, when I was reading this book, it doesn't even feel real. 
it felt fiction, you know? It didn't mm. feel like a nonfiction book, but it is. So uh, strap in yeah. <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. I don't like the sound of that. Yeah. So let's jump in, shall we? Let's do it. Let's do it. Colleen Stan was born on December 31st, 1956 to Jack and Evelyn Martin. Her parents split up when she was very young and she was raised in Riverside, California, mostly by her mother. She had a fairly normal childhood. Nothing really stands out. Um, she was an average student in school and at 16, she dropped out of high school and married 22-year-old Tom Stan, whom she had only met a few months earlier. Tom Stan? Mm-hmm. Two first names. Yeah, that's true. Uh, she moved in with Tom to his home state of Ohio, but they started having problems as soon as they set up their house, and within a year of their marriage, it had dissolved. So, brokenhearted, Colleen moved back to Riverside. She went back to school and passed the high school equivalency exam and had a few jobs and some boyfriends. She made friends with a couple from Oregon, Alice Walsh and her boyfriend, Bob. The couple had a two-year-old son who Colleen absolutely loved, and they all became super close and agreed to move into a place in Eugene, Oregon. Colleen Stan, who was 20 years old at the time, had left Eugene, Oregon the morning of May 19, 1977, at about 11 a.m. when her roommates, Alice and Bob, drove her to the freeway. There were dozens of reasons why Colleen should not have been hitchhiking that day, but this was a time when hitchhiking had been happening constantly, and, you know, those reasons just seemed less important. Which, I mean, we've talked about hitchhiking on this podcast before. It just isn't a good idea, folks. Yeah, but, you know, people did it in the 70s as normal. Sure did. Also, who is still hitchhiking I in mean, 2020? I hope 2021. not. We're 2021. We're 2021. Hello, we're almost 2022. No. You good? No, it's not. <laughs> I I'm reject in denial. that. Yeah. I'm in denial. <laughs> She was wearing a plaid wool Pendleton jeans and earth shoes, which I don't know what a Pendleton or earth shoes are, but I know what jeans are. So, <laughs> Right. So it sounds crunchy. It does. It does sound crunchy. <laughs> she was medium height, medium build, had thick hair, and she looked virtually indistinguishable from any number of hitchhikers in a town nearly dominated by University of Oregon students. Her destination was Westwood, which was a small town in Northern California, to surprise her friend Linda for her birthday. This day was a Thursday, and she told her roommates that she'd be back on Saturday. Colleen's plan was to hitchhike down Interstate 5, which was a long ribbon of road that snakes all the way from the Canadian border down to San Diego. And she was making good time. She had already managed to get two rides and all the way down to Red Bluff, and it was only four o'clock, so she only had about a hundred more miles to go. She was no stranger to hitchhiking, and at this point she felt like she knew which cars she could trust and which ones she should probably pass up. So, for instance, a carload of guys offered her a ride, but she turned it down because it seemed too risky, which I think is good. Oh, amen. <laughs> you 100%. know? Yeah. One girl, car full of guys... Don't go in that yeah, car. Not, don't even need to know more. Yeah. After that, another car stopped, but the couple said that they could only take her a short distance, so she turned them down too. That's when a blue two-door Dodge Colt pulled over and Colleen saw a young couple in the front with a woman holding a baby in her arms. They looked to be about Colleen's age, and she felt they looked pretty similar to her roommates, Alice and Bob. Not wealthy, but not hippies either. So, you know... 
a little disarming. Yeah, you know? the babies the disarm really the disarming yeah, part. I was gonna say strike number one woman, strike number two baby. Yep. Babies can't kidnap people. You know what I mean? Apparently not. So also another thing to be aware of, another tactic people use to get people into a car, like kidnapping, um, they'll they'll just put like a, a car seat into their car or like baby toys or something like that because babies are disarming. So yeah, people that have children are not criminals. Right. You can't have a baby if you're a bad guy, right? Don't trust nobody out here, guys. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> so the man told her they were headed toward Mineral, which would have put her in a giant step in the right direction. So being that these people felt trustworthy, Colleen tossed her sleeping bag and backpack in the back seat and climbed in. But things started off badly. Colleen carried a jug of grape juice with her, and as she opened the lid to take a sip, uh, the man accelerated, and the purple juice spilled down the front of her shirt. Douche. What the fuck? <laughs> I mean, I don't know that it was on purpose, but uh, she didn't take this as a bad sign, nor did she pay any attention to the odd wooden box sitting on the seat beside her. And we'll get back to that. But as they drove out of the town, the scenery became beautiful. But no matter how stunning the scenery, Colleen couldn't help but notice that the driver kept glancing at her in the rearview mirror, which began to make her nervous. I mean, as it should. Yeah. Um, I don't like that. Don't look at me. What the hell? The fuck I mean? you looking at? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I'm already, like, very combative. Yeah, well, you, yes. As, and when we talk about... As who I it, should be. Yes, as you should be. A few miles up the road, they stopped for gas, and Colleen took this opportunity to go to the restroom to change her grape juice-covered blouse. And standing in the small bathroom, she had a strange feeling that she should escape, and a small voice was warning her run and get away she noticed that the restroom had a little window and the voice also told her to crawl out of the window and get away (laughs) but colleen shook this impulse away because she didn't understand why she'd have such crazy notions and so she just went back to the car which sucks i know i'm like fuck yeah follow those gut instincts you know know what i mean i swear to god there's like there's i mean not that i'm comparing no preface it with that mm-hmm. i've also had so many situations in my life where my intuition was correct mm-hmm. and i dismissed it and then you feel even like more stupid after you've done it and you're like i knew what the fuck was gonna happen mm-hmm. and it happened yeah it sucks looking I back mean, it's but... there for a reason it's like your gut like, instinct yeah i feel like dude that's just like evolution passed down they're like yeah it's crazy but yeah. it yeah she could not have known what was gonna happen oh, next absolutely not <laughs> But, uh, it's, yeah, it just sucks. Um, yeah, so she did go back to the car. The wife had bought some candy bars and they shared them as they continued on. And they started making small talk, which was when Colleen shared that she was on her way to surprise her friend for her birthday. So her friend didn't know that she was coming, which in the moment, I'm sure, didn't, she didn't even think twice about, but now the couple knew that nobody was expecting her. Yeah, I was just about to say, in the beginning of your sentence, I was like, oh, now they know that somebody's expecting her. And then you're like, oh, it was a surprise. And I'm like, shit. Right. So he's like, oh, my brother is expecting me. My big, big, gigantic brother yes. is expecting me. Um, I have an FBI appointment. And then <laughs> yeah. after that, I'm meeting with the CIA and the vice president. And they all governor. have my location. I'm being tracked. I'm sharing it now. <laughs> I actually just heard about this um story on a podcast i was listening to of this woman who was um this car pulled up to her and they like jumped out of the car to like pull her into the car and she 
whipped out her phone and she was like, I'm on live stream. I'm live streaming right now. So like everyone can see you. And they just jumped in the car and drove away. And that wasn't true. Isn't that insane? That is so smart. Yeah, I know. That's quick. That's really quick. So I just wanted to pass that information along because hello, that's in- that's, that's insanely idea. smart. It's like, dude, you're on Twitch. Yeah, I'm live streaming. People I'm on Instagram are Live right now. Yeah. <laughs> so now they know that nobody's expecting her, and now the conversation shifted to ice caves. And the driver informed Colleen that his brother said that there were some ice caves up around here, and he asked her if she would care if they turned off their track for a quick look at one of these ice caves. No. <laughs> All Colleen wanted was to go to Westwood, but she told them that she wouldn't mind a short detour because she didn't want to be rude and she wasn't really in a position to Ooh. pick the route, you know? I know, but right. be rude. No, of course, but she, I mean, she's in their car, so she I can't know. really do anything. They turned off the highway and they began bumping down a dirt road and they were completely alone after stopping about a mile down this road near a small stream. The wife immediately got out of the car and carried her baby over to the nearby stream. And the driver climbed out of the car as well, leaving Colleen alone in the back seat for a moment. And before she could even ask any questions, the man came over to the passenger side of the car, pulled the seat forward, jumped in, and put a knife to her throat and said, put your hands above your head. Colleen froze for a moment, but then did what he said and lifted her now shaking hands above her head. The man grabbed her hands and handcuffed them behind her back. He had everything ready and moved quickly as if these were practiced motions. And he pulled out a piece of cloth and tied it over her eyes and asked her, are you going to do what I tell you to do? She quietly said yes. And she decided that she'd go along with whatever he said, hopefully keeping him from hurting her. Next, she felt a strange leather strap encircling her head tightening at her cheek until the strap beneath her chin made it impossible for her to open her jaw, which was a gag of some sort. He also grabbed her ankles and tied them with rope. So now she's handcuffed, she's blindfolded, and she's bound and gagged. But that, unfortunately, was not it. The strange wooden box that Colleen had noticed sitting on the seat next to her was this man's special creation. Though it was made of plywood and about the size of a hat box, It was surprisingly heavy, weighing around 20 pounds. There was dense insulation sandwiched in between its double walls, and it was hinged with metal clasps, and the interior of the box was carpeted. As he opened it, the circular hole at the bottom split into semicircles on their side, and he forced Colleen to lie down and maneuver her head into the box, fitting her neck into the sculpted hole. He then closed it around her head with a snap. It shut out all light, muffled all sound, and it pinched her neck, trapping her thick hair tightly against the nape of her neck. The stranglehold heightened the terror and the carpeted interior pressed against her face, which made her breathing turn into gasps. And honestly, I'm having trouble breathing. <laughs> like, God. And I had trouble breathing while researching that. Like, I'm yeah. extremely claustrophobic and like... Oh, I'm sure this was a really fun research story for you. It's so, so it's basically like almost airtight. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. That is nightmare fuel and times like a thousand. it's like 20 pounds on your head? Yes. Like, I don't... That's so hard to maneuver. I don't know. Is she laying down? Yeah. She's standing up? No, down? she's... I mean, she was sitting in the backseat of the car, but he's he lays her down in the backseat. Yeah, I mean, like, good luck lifting that up. Yeah. Um, she would come to know this horrible contraption as the head box. And after trapping her, he covered Colleen with her sleeping bag 
that she had so conveniently provided, and then he decided that he was done. The man behind this nightmare was Cameron Hooker, along with his wife, Janice Hooker, and their infant daughter. Cameron Hooker was born in Alturas, California on November 5th, 1953 to Harold and Lorena Hooker. His parents were simple folk, not highly skilled or well-educated, but he was raised in a traditional, warm, and caring family. No child abuse, no divorce, nothing. He couldn't even remember any major fights between his parents. Growing up, the family moved every two or three years, so Cameron and his brother were constantly being uprooted and never got to make great, lasting friendships. But Cameron was described as a quiet but happy kid. When Cameron was 16, his family moved to Red Bluff and finally settled down. He didn't have any close friends, but, you know, a lot of kids have that growing up, so, like, there's no excuse here. Um, he didn't join any organizations or teams, but he excelled at shop class and liked learning about tools, machines, and construction. Around this time was when he discovered pornographic magazines, but more specifically, porn with whips and chains. BDSM. And I want to say, there's nothing wrong with BDSM. Just want to put that out there. The BDSM community is built upon consent, and as long as the participants are both consenting adults, then I say have at it. You know what I mean? Like, totally, 100%. totally fine. 100%. But what Cameron Hooker didn't like about BDSM was the consent part. And therein lies the problem. So that's the, <laughs> that's the issue here. Sure. At 19 years old, Cameron wanted to act out these fantasies, and the answer to that was a plain, shy, 15-year-old girl named Janice. In 1973, Janice was introduced to Cameron by a mutual friend, and Janice was easy to manipulate for Cameron because he was nice to her, and that wasn't something that she was used to. That's so fucked up. Yeah. Janice was the youngest of four children, and although she never experienced any physical abuse in her house, she was neglected by her parents, and her parents weren't around much, which, which left Janice to be raised mostly by her older sister, Lisa. Jan was resentful of her sister because she always felt like Lisa was the favorite because she got the attention from her parents that Lisa never got, or that Janice never got, sorry. She also had epilepsy as a child and believed that it also contributed to her parents' indifference because her father believed that people who had epilepsy were possessed by demons. Because that makes sense. Because that makes perfect sense. <laughs> She felt that rejection and disapproval from a very young age, so when Cameron came along and gave her the attention she so desperately needed, she did anything to keep him with her. A few months into the relationship, when Cameron first brought up his fantasies, at first she told him no, but he told her that his other girlfriends would let him do it, which pressured her into doing whatever he wanted. Can we... how old is he again? 19. And she's 15. Mm-hmm. Want to puke? Yeah. He made handcuffs that he'd hang her to trees with, which was extremely painful and scared her, or he'd restrain her and take pictures of her. But when he'd take her down, he was so affectionate and he'd hold her, which made her very happy. She hated everything about what he'd do, but the aftermath made it worth it for her. The restraining and hanging from trees quickly turned into whipping and beating, which would leave welts all over her body. She even put up with a few brushes with death. On one occasion, Cameron wanted to tie her up and dunk her into the creek, which led to her almost drowning. 
After a year and a half of dating, Janice decided she needed a commitment from Cameron and lied to him and told him that she was pregnant to get him to promise marriage. And although she was only 16, Janice's parents gave up uh, gave Cameron permission to marry her, even though they made Lisa wait until she was 18 to get married. So her parents really were like, yeah, we don't care that much. Like, Wow, yeah. I don't know. How do you not know that this is going on, especially if all the bruises and welts? I don't know. I mean, I, they already neglected her, so I yeah. guess that's why, but that's so fucked up. Mm-hmm. And it also, like, solidified in, in Janice's mind when they made Lisa wait till she was 18 and they let her get married when she was 16. Like, she was like, oh, you guys really don't care. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. great. Yeah, so the two were married in January of 1975, and Janice was hardly 17. Not long into their marriage, the two had a fight, and Cameron got so mad that he put a knife to her throat and asked if she wanted to die. The two settled into 1140 Oak Street, which was located in the quieter part of town. It was a small stucco structure painted an unlikely pink and edged in a brick red color. The owners of the home, an elderly couple by the name of Letty, lived next door and rented out the home to Cameron and Janice Hooker. Mrs. Letty remembers them as a, quote, nice couple, and they paid rent on time, they were hardworking and just quiet, and Cameron struck them as the serious type, but overall the Lettys agreed that they liked the Hookers. To neighbors and onlookers, Cameron and Janice Hooker seemed like a very average young couple just starting out. At 24, Cameron was tall and gangly. He worked as a mill worker at Diamond International, which was a big lumber mill at the time. And Janice, who was 19, was very slim, despite being a new mother, and both wore glasses and had brown hair. Hers wavy and long, and his straight and shaggy. And they mostly kept to themselves. I wonder why. Yeah, no shit. As time went on, Cameron's sadistic experiments got only more severe and violent to the point where Jan was afraid he might actually kill her if if she attempted to stand up to him. Around this time was when Cameron introduced the idea that one person was no longer enough to quote-unquote satisfy his cravings. So he wanted to bring another woman into their home who quote-unquote couldn't say no. He told her this third person would take Jan's place in his fantasies, which would make it easier on her. And Janice was so dependent on Cameron and still loved him, despite what he put her through. She couldn't imagine being without him, so she agreed to allowing him to find a slave on two conditions. One, he didn't have penetrative sex with this slave, because that was apparently sacred and for her. And two, she wanted him to give her a baby. Well, it's amazing to me that the condition of this was like to not discontinue her abuse. Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what he told her, though. He was like, the painful stuff will be reserved for her, and then you'll get to, you know, continue being my wife, and oh my God. all my fantasies will be for my slave. And he's basically groomed her since she was 15. Yes, 100%. Right. So now let's go back to Colleen's nightmare in the backseat of their car. Cameron called to Janice, and she brought their infant daughter back to the car, and they got in. Then he started up the engine and turned the car back down the dirt road and started their average-looking family back toward home. The head box was suffocatingly hot, terrifyingly claustrophobic, and Colleen felt smothered beneath the sleeping bag. Her heart thudded in her ears and adrenaline shot through her veins, which elevated her temperature. For a time, she felt the weight of the baby on top of her as well, but it cried and Janice took it back up to the front. Colleen couldn't see anything and could barely hear a thing, 
but she felt as the car turned back onto the pavement, and she sensed that they were driving back west. She could make out a few traffic noises at first, but then heard more as they entered town. The car stopped for a moment, the door opened, and there was a slight shifting of weight, and then the door closed again, and they again were driving, but this time it felt as if they were driving aimlessly or circling the block probably because they couldn't pull a body out of their car. So immediately she was forced. They were waiting for it to get dark. After a while, the traffic lessened and the car came to a halt. To Colleen's relief, the sleeping bag was lifted off and the head box was unlatched. They let her sit up and she felt the sweat roll down her back. They kept the blindfold on her, but she was immediately aware of the smell of food. The couple had stopped at a fast food restaurant and they were sitting in their car eating hamburgers and fries. Just normal. Yeah, just normal. Just like a normal <laughs> hamburger. Yeah, you want to make fries. it a happy meal? Yeah, like you want fries with that? The fuck? So they sat in the car for a while, waiting for it to get dark. And Colleen sat there wondering how she might get away. But they soon snapped the box back on her head and they made her lie down once again. They pulled their blue Dodge Colt into the alley behind their house. And Cameron came around to the back seat and untied her ankles so that she could walk and they took the head box off of her. But again, everything else stayed on. So like the- She's still handcuffed. She's still handcuffed. She still has a blindfold. She still has the gag. So that's what it is. She was led up some stairs and through a kitchen. And while the man led her through the narrow door and down a steep short flight of stairs into the basement, Janice went upstairs to put down the baby, which meant that Colleen was now alone with her kidnapper. And just trigger warning, it's about to get dark. You know, I'm not going to tell you the specifics of everything that happened because there's just so much and some things I don't even really want to talk about. But if you're interested, you can read Perfect Victim. Immediately, he stripped off her clothes and she was forced up onto an icebox and handcuffed to a contraption that Cameron called the rack. He had attached a beam and hooks to the ceiling, which he attached her leather handcuffs to. And then he kicked the support from underneath her. So she was literally hanging by her wrists from the ceiling and Cameron then started whipping her. She was struggling and kicking her feet to try to get down or find the box that she had been standing on, but he screamed at her to stop kicking and just relax. So at this point, she's stunned and completely panicking, but tries to hold herself still, which surprisingly does make him stop whipping her. She tried to calm herself down and just breathe as she heard him moving around the basement. She tried to concentrate on something, but out of the small gap at the bottom of her blindfold, she saw an open magazine. It was open to a page of a naked woman hanging in the exact same position that she was in, which really just solidified that this wasn't a nightmare and only magnified her fear. For a moment, he put something underneath her feet so she could just barely stand on her tiptoes as he went upstairs and left the basement. At this point, she was in and out of blacking out from the pain, but when she regained some sense of what was happening, she realized that her captors were now in the basement with her and having sex on the floor in front of her, which is absolutely foul. What <laughs> like, the fuck? I just can't even wrap my head around that one. Yeah. After that, Janice went back upstairs and Cameron unhooked her wrist from the beam and took her down. He then led her to another wooden box that he had constructed and forced her inside. This box was about three feet high and she was maneuvered into it face first. He had handcuffed her inside the small box and then put the head box back on her as well. 
So her body was cramped into one box and then the head box was also around her head and neck. So she couldn't move or see or hear anything and could barely breathe. In a claustrophobic panic, she started kicking the sides of the box, but that made Cameron angry. So he came back and he wrapped her ankles with cord and tied them to the side of the box. Again, she tried to kick the sides of the box and again he came back, but this time he fit something around her chest that dug into her ribs and made it so that she couldn't even expand her chest, which made it even harder to breathe, which I couldn't even imagine how she was able to breathe in the first place, but now she can't even expand her chest, which is like, like I can't imagine. He also placed something between her legs, which was another one of his inventions, Uh, that was designed to shock her all night long, but thankfully it didn't work. It malfunctioned. It was like supposed to electrically shock her? Yeah, it was supposed to like electrocute her all night long, which didn't happen, so. For what reason? Torture. I mean, I understand, but. Yeah. Don't at the same time? Yeah, (sighs) I don't know. Throughout the night, Cameron would come into the basement and put his hand on her back because her back was kind of exposed Um, because she was in it face first and like it was open at the top, I guess. And every time he would put his hand on her back, this would terrify Colleen. And she didn't know if he was doing this to scare her all night long or if he was coming down to check if she was still alive. I'm confused though. What is her like configuration? So her head is in the box Mm -hmm. and then the box that her head is in is in another box that Um, her entire body is in, but her back is showing. Yeah, it was kind of confusing in the book as well. I think it's, I think her head was probably sticking out. The way I pictured it was kind of like a magician. Like, you know, when when they like saw a woman in half? Yeah. I kind of pictured it like that. Where like your head is out and has a box on it. Exactly. That's kind of how I pictured it. And she's like in it, um, like face down so that her, her back is exposed but she's like chained to it and her her feet are tied and also tied to the box. So she can't move and she is like completely confined. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I'm in awe of how this is occurring. No, it's it's an absolute nightmare. (laughs) Like it's literally the, the worst thing I could imagine. Yeah. That was her first night. Right. And this went on for weeks. Colleen came to know the routine of one meal a day extreme isolation, torturous restraint, and unexplained and unexpected brutality. She teetered between hope and dread, wanting to be released from her box, but then fearing what that release meant. Cameron Hooker began to realize that keeping Colleen chained to the rack wasn't going to work long-term. She could alert neighbors if she made too much noise, and if anyone ever came into their house, she was kind of in plain sight. So that's when he had to come up with something new. Colleen had told her roommates, Alice and Bob, that she'd be back in Eugene on Saturday, May 21st. But when she failed to appear, Alice guessed she may have continued down the length of California to visit her mother in Riverside. So Alice called Colleen's mother, but they both became extremely worried when they realized that neither of them had heard from Colleen. They wanted to call Linda, Colleen's friend who she had intended on surprising, but she didn't have a phone because it was the 70s. Uh that happening so call someone who can call her yeah so instead no she didn't have a phone so instead they called the westwood police and they checked in with linda and she told them that she hadn't seen or heard from colleen in quite some time either 
and a missing persons report was filed, but Cameron Hooker left no clues to be traced back to him, so Colleen just had simply vanished. Colleen's long periods of sensory deprivation were broken only in the evenings, usually around 8 o'clock. After their dinner, the hookers would sometimes bring down leftovers, and Colleen would be freed from the head box and let down from the rack. She'd still have the blindfold on, but at least she could look out at the gap at the bottom, or from the gap at the bottom. One day, while her daily torture on the rack, Colleen could hear through the head box that Cameron Hooker was in the basement with her and he was building something. He'd work down there all day long, every day, and yet he barely ever said a word to Colleen. At mealtime, she'd attempt to talk to him to learn more about her captor to possibly use it against him to escape, but every time she'd attempt to talk to him, he'd just get more angry and punish her, so she learned to stop doing that. After 10 days of constant construction, his project was complete. He had built a new box for Colleen, and it stood about three feet tall and six and a half feet long and had a lid that opened at the top. It took up about as much space as a freezer, but was double-walled, so the interior was smaller and more confined, which was about the size of a coffin. He had also lined the bottom of it with the sleeping bag she had brought with her for the trip to Westwood, and she was put into the box without a comment. One small consolation was that Hooker had removed the head box and gag, but she was still blindfolded and naked. He also put wax earplugs in her ears, which just kind of like adds to the terrifyingness of it all. You can't even hear when he's coming. Exactly. So like he took off the head box, but she still can't hear anything, which is terrible. God, the psychological part of this is so horrific. Mm Mm-hmm. The whole thing is horrific. I mean, yeah. Right. I mean, it doesn't seem like she's her ever, her blindfold is ever removed. Yeah, pretty much. So she's just in darkness this whole time. I mean, up until this point, yes, that's true. Yeah. Um, She doesn't know when he's coming. She can't hear anything. I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this would be where Colleen pretty much would stay for the next seven years. Not entirely. This is mostly true. There would be times where she would be let out of the box The longest span of time she would be let out of the box was about a year, and we're going to talk about that, but she was in the box for a long time. Oh my god. Yeah. On a small few occasions, Janice left Cameron, only to come back a few weeks later. She felt sorry for Colleen and felt shame and remorse, but she also felt jealousy and resentment. Janice just didn't have the courage to sever her ties with Cameron and just always came back. So, a weak woman, in my opinion. Well, I mean... I mean, right. Part of me is like, she's a victim too, but the other part of me is like, Janice, you know? I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, you you can't even begin to put yourself in what you're... No, of course. I mean, she's been pretty much in the same situation, being tortured since she was 15. No, I I know. And it's it's a very sticky situation. I know, manipulated to the highest degree, but Mm -hmm. you can't just, you can't help but feel really angry that she didn't do anything about it. Mm Mm-hmm. It's, yes, it's a very complicated feeling that I have for Janice. And you, yes, that is exactly right. But yeah, uh, after a while, Colleen learned how to mark the passing of time by the simplest measures. If it was cool, that meant that it was the morning. And as the day went on, the box would gradually get hotter. And then around 8 p.m., when Hooker would open the box for mealtime, the heat would escape and cool down and would gradually get colder as it got later. And he'd only take her out of the box for mealtimes and when he wanted to abuse her and then put her up on the rack. About six months into her captivity, Colleen had been put to work. 
Cameron wanted to construct what he called the workshop under the stairs, which would be a new place for Colleen to stay, and she had to help him build it. Oh my god. But she couldn't just come out of the box and help him. That would be too simple. He had constructed an even bigger and heavier head box that was so heavy that she couldn't even stand with it on without having to counterweight the box with a gallon jug of water so that it was usable. And the jug... So the box was so big and heavy that in order for her to stand with it on, they had to counterweight the head box with a gallon jug of water, like with a string. Oh my God. Yeah. And so the jug would like swing next to her in the air and she would have to like work clumsily by touch because she couldn't see. But she also couldn't mess up because if she messed up, she would be punished. So she figured it out and they finished working. Uh, yeah, but punishments... I'm I'm just in disbelief. Punishments and also just day-to-day existence consisted of hangings, whippings, strangulations, electrocutions, burning, and sexual abuse. And I'm not going to get into the specifics of those, but those are also just very severe words. So the workshop had a door and was similar to an oddly shaped closet beneath the stairs. He gave it a concrete floor and carpeted the walls for soundproofing. And once it was completely done, Hooker got Colleen out of the box and put her inside unshackled, but was still blindfolded, and left her with a sack full of walnuts and instructed her to de-shell the nuts. What? (laughs) What the fuck? For what reason? I mean, I can only assume because after a while it would hurt. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, he didn't give her like a cracker? No, probably not. Like... Yeah, I don't know. But once she was shut inside, she was able to take off her blindfold for the first time in six months. The workshop was not much bigger than the box, but at least it was vertical. And not only could she see, but now she could move. And there was even a chair. They also gave her a blue terry cloth nightgown around Christmas time, since she had been complaining about it being cold in the workshop at night. And now that she split her time between the box and the workshop, Cameron and Janice would have her macrame and crochet things when she was in the workshop, and she actually became pretty good at it. And so they'd take these macrame and crocheted things and go to the flea market and sell them and make profit off of her things. Oh my god. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so this is literally slave... I mean, yeah, no shit, Alex, but this is slave labor. Oh, yeah, she's a slave. Could you imagine buying one of those and finding out what it was years later? That's horrifying. And oh, my God. I'm, I'm glad you said that because Cameron wanted to make that official, okay? So on January 25th, 1978, Cameron came into the basement with Janice, opened the workshop door, and told Colleen to take off her blindfold. And this was the first time since her abduction she had seen her captor's faces. So this must have been extremely terrifying for her because I'm sure as Colleen, you're sitting there like, okay, I'm either never getting out of here or they're going to kill me right now. Because if they're, if I'm going to see their faces, like, what does this mean? Right. You know? And he gave her a clipboard with paper and pen and told her to practice writing her name. She didn't know why, but she did as she was told. But she was confronted with an article about the buying and selling of women. Cameron Hooker had a vast collection of pornography, and in one underground newspaper called Inside News, he found an article detailing a sample sex slavery contract. So he came up with the idea to duplicate the slavery contract and get Colleen to sign it. He knew Colleen wouldn't just sign away her rights, so after handing her this article about sex trafficking, he told her that the quote-unquote, the company, knew that she was here. 
He said the company was the organization described in the article that she had just read, which was a network of slave traders who turned captive women into profit. And he was born into this network. So his father and his brother were also a part of the company, along with many other men in the community. This is a, he's saying this is a family business? Kind of. I mean, it's, it's like sex trafficking. I'm, I'm aware. Yeah. I'm shocked though. Right. He told Colleen that the company knew he held Colleen Stan prisoner in his basement and he would have to register her. And if she didn't sign, the company would take her away and do far worse things to her. He also told her that if she ever tried to escape, the company would capture her and torture her or resell her or kill her. And if she ever told anyone, the company would not only kill her, but they'd also kill the person she told. He knew he had to make this look believable, so he rented a typewriter and had Janice type the slavery contract and put a seal with an S with a cross through it, which was the quote-unquote company seal to make it look real. And so Cameron handed her this contract. And in the contract, it stated that Colleen would now be the slave of Michael Powers. And at this point, she knew his name was Cameron because she had seen his name like through the slit of her blindfold on his like underwear or something. And she also had heard him call her Janice, like his wife. So she's like, I thought your name was Cameron. And he's like, Michael Powers is my company name. So it said, you're the slave of Michael Powers. It also said, from now on, she would be known as K. So she's no longer Colleen. She is K, the letter K. She would also have to refer to Cameron as sir or master and call Janice ma'am. And she could never look them in the face. And she needed to wear a permanent collar around her neck for identification purposes. After Colleen had signed the contract, Cameron started describing in detail what would happen to her if she attempted to escape. He told her that Janice had also been a slave, and she had once attempted to escape. She was hitchhiking and had been picked up by a police officer, and she thought she was safe, but he was also a part of the company, so he dropped her back off to her owners, who nailed her up by her hands as a punishment, and also put her on a rack that twisted her legs until they were permanently damaged. And as Janice was standing there, next to Cameron, she was wearing knee braces. She did have knee problems, but she had just gotten out of the hospital for knee surgery. So this was completely a lie, but Colleen didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, how could you? And it just solidified the terror, you know, that she's standing there with knee braces. So he then went on to explain that the company owned a place in LA called Rent-A-Dungeon, and members of the company... (laughs) I'm sorry. Rent-A-Dungeon? Yeah. And the the members of this company could pay to pick a girl and take her there to torture her. And if a member accidentally killed this girl, they just had to pay a fine. So, yep. Oh my God. This is like a Black Mirror episode. Yeah, but I mean, also, sex trafficking is a very real thing. Oh, I'm aware. Yeah, so it's like... I mean, like you said in the beginning, it doesn't seem real. Right, no, I know. It's, It's just crazy. So he also gave her a sealed registration card with the same company seal from the company that acknowledged that he paid $1,500 to register her so that she knew it was official. And with these rules established and the existence of the company firmly in place, Colleen, or Kay, was now allowed to come upstairs to work. She'd do mostly chores, washing dishes, cleaning up, and she was allowed to use the bathroom if she knelt and asked permission first. 
but he also imposed these attention drills, which meant whenever he shouted attention, Colleen had to strip off her clothes and stand on her tiptoes in a doorway with her hands up to the top of the frame and wait for him to release her. One morning, rather than putting Colleen back into the box, Cameron left her in the workshop, which was strange. Not only that, but she heard a lot of commotion coming from upstairs. She spent about 48 hours in the workshop, and the second night she, was, she wasn't even allowed out to eat. Much later, around 3 a.m., when Cameron finally let her out, he blindfolded her, handcuffed her, and led her upstairs through the kitchen and out the back door and into the car. Jan was already waiting in the pickup, and Cameron had Colleen put her head down in Jan's lap so she couldn't be seen as they drove away. They drove about five miles away and down a bumpy gravel road in the front of their new home. This new property was out beyond city limits in a sparsely populated area. They purchased a yellow and brown single-wide trailer on an acre of land down a dirt road just off Pershing Road. Cameron felt this move would be a smart move for them because their old house was a rental, meaning they had a landlord and could, that could pop in at any time. And also, this property was far more remote, and it still had neighbors, but they were just much more farther apart. So Colleen was led out of the cab, up the stairs, and into a bedroom. When her blindfold and handcuffs were removed, she saw a waterbed with a very large bed frame in front of her. He then gestured to a small hole at the base, which was an entrance to a space beneath the bed, and said, this is where you'll be staying. This box wasn't much different from the one she'd already spent months in, although it was smaller, more confining, and even more coffin-like. This was beneath their bed, so Cameron and Janice would be sleeping on top of her. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Right. I'm speechless. She had a couple of air holes that Cameron had cut into the side, and he had set up a blower which was really just a hairdryer set up on the cool setting, which didn't really cool her down. It just made a noise that drive her crazy or drove her crazy. Although the address had changed, her routine stayed the same. She was let out for just an hour or so a day in the evenings to eat, brush her teeth, clean out her bedpan, or help out with chores. About every two weeks, she was allowed to shower. She spent all day in this box, and it was summer with no AC. And it, was, it would get so hot in this box that all she could do was lie in there and sweat. And on one occasion, Cameron and Janice went away for the weekend, leaving Colleen in the box with no food and water for days. And when they came out, or when they came back, she was so weak, she couldn't even stand. And this apparently left a lasting impression on them, because the next time they needed to leave her in the box, they left her with a quart of water and a dozen chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> because that was not good. They didn't want her to die, because she was their slave. But at this point, it was a year into Colleen's captivity. Cameron decided that he needed some sort of outbuilding for pursuing his quote-unquote hobbies outside of the house away from his children, so he built a shed behind the trailer. Children multiple now? Not yet, just one child, but there will be children. On the first trip out to the shed, ah, yes, so we're just about to get the, to the second child. Please hold. On the first trip out to the shed, Janice was with Cameron as he hung up Colleen by her wrists. And since she had spent most of her time in the new box and hadn't been hung up in a while since the move, the pain hit with a fresh intensity. Usually she could hold back from kicking her legs because that would lead to worse punishment, but this time she just couldn't help it. And by the worst luck ever, she kicked Jan in the stomach, who at the time was very pregnant with their second child. 
So I'm going to spare the details of Colleen's punishment for that, but it was from that moment on that Colleen decided that she wouldn't cry in front of Cameron. She didn't want to give him the satisfaction, and she decided that she would only cry when she was alone in the box, which I just kind of felt was significant because we're kind of seeing just how broken she really has become but also i don't know she's still kind of holding on to like a little bit of control no for sure and i like i i think that's very strong but also when i say broken i well because later on in the court case people are kind of shocked at how like emotionless she is and i think that this kind of contributes how can you even be they're gonna you're gonna judge her for being emotionless or i'm like are you kidding me this like, the whole she's thing been is... in a box for a whole year more than a year, babe. But it's gonna be is, crazy. Is huge? I mean, just gonna be seven. Right. Fucking. Yeah, the court case is gonna get a little, a little bonkers. Um, I'm not, not looking forward to this one. Really, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, she kicked Jan, who was pregnant. But yeah, she didn't know that Jan was pregnant. She was blindfolded. And yeah, I mean, I mean, she knew. I'm sure she knew that Jan was pregnant, but she. I don't think she knew Jan was in the room with her. And she was just like kicking around because she couldn't stand the pain. And she didn't even know that she kicked someone. And then she got taken down and then, you know, was punished. But yeah, from that moment on, she decided she wouldn't give Cameron the satisfaction of seeing her cry because she knew he liked it. Also, just a side note, the baby was fine. And in fact, Jan gave birth to their second daughter on the waterbed at home while Colleen was in the box beneath their bed the entire time, listening to the miracle of childbirth. Ugh. Yeah. As time went on, money became tight and they decided that Janice would have to get a job. So she got a job at a little fast food place on Main Street. Now that Janice was out of the house more, Colleen was let out of the box more and spent more time taking care of the kids, cooking and cleaning. And since Colleen was in the box when she left and in it when she got back, Janice was never the wiser. Even though she was let out more, Cameron didn't speak much to her. And if he did, it was mostly just about the company and more neighbors were moving into the area, so he would tell her that some of them were involved in the company. It also was around this time that Cameron would start taking Colleen out on runs. In the evening, when Jan would leave for work, Cameron would load the kids up and Colleen into the car and drive them to a long dirt road, and he'd force Colleen out and drive alongside her as she ran. But with Colleen now being let out of the box more frequently, there was more danger of her being discovered. Both Cameron and Janice's family would stop by fairly regularly, so they were more careful about when they would let her out. And on one occasion, Cameron's father opened the door without knocking, and Colleen was on the floor in her blue nightgown scrubbing the floor. So Cameron quickly led her into the bedroom, put put clothes on her, and was like, this is our friend, she's gotta go home now. And he took her outside and put her into the car and, or shoved her into the shed and then just drove off for about 10 minutes and then came back. And then once the dad left, just like put her back in the box. So that happened. Her on... friend was scrubbing the floor. And was there anything about what the dad thought about that? There were a few occasions where the parents saw her and also the neighbors will see her. Like she becomes like a staple in the neighborhood. Like she, they're, they're like, oh, it's Kay the babysitter. <laughs> like we're going to get there. But uh, yeah, so she becomes like a, a piece of the family kind of. Oh. Yeah. January 11th, 1980 marked the beginning of what we're going to call, quote unquote, the year out. This day, the hookers gave Colleen a Bible, which she had asked for for Christmas. And this was a clear marker for when her captivity changed, at least for a year. 
and she was gradually let out for longer periods of time and given more responsibilities with less supervision. She was allowed to work on the vegetable garden outside. She was she would regularly babysit the kids. She was allowed to go on jogs on her own, and she was even allowed to go into town to shop. She met and talked to neighbors, and she became known as Kay the Babysitter. There you go. The hookers closest neighbor, Dorothy and Al Copa, felt like something was kind of weird uh, with the hookers and Kay, but they didn't know what, and they noticed that Kay didn't have many clothes and once passed on some of Al's old jeans, saying that he had gotten too fat for them anyways, and, Do and Dorothy also offered to take Kay to church with her, but Kay declined since she had to. There was even one occasion where Colleen and Jan went out dancing while Cameron stayed home with the girls. The two went to a local bar called the New Orleans, they drank beer, they danced, and they even met a couple of men who invited them back to their apartment afterwards. They went back with the men, and Jan made sure to tell Cameron of their excursion because at this point she was fully threatened and jealous of Cameron's feelings toward Colleen, but she didn't get the reaction she wanted. He didn't care. But she continued dating this guy for a few months, but since Cameron wasn't jealous, she stopped seeing the guy. I'm, what the... Janice she... was fully threatened by his feelings for Colleen. Like, like I get it, and then yeah. now he doesn't care if she goes and sees other guys, but Colleen was with her the whole time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they, they even let her out to run and go mm -hmm. to the grocery store. Yes, but in her mind, but the company every, exists. Yeah. yeah, but she thinks everybody's in on it. Yes. At this point, Colleen had proven that she was hardworking, subservient, and trustworthy, but that as a precaution, Cameron continually emphasized the threat of the company. And that was only solidified uh, one day on one of her jogs. Cameron had told Colleen that he was planning to go to a company meeting in Sacramento on Sunday. And after that conversation, Colleen went on a jog, and as she passed by one of the neighbor's houses, Mr. George was outside talking to his father, who also lived nearby, about plans to go to Sacramento the next day, too. It was a pure coincidence. But Colleen, oh my God. but to Colleen, this meant that Mr. George and his father were also company members. So, just by pure stupid luck. Mm-hmm. Another small but significant freedom Colleen got around this time was the change in her sleeping arrangements. Instead of being locked in the box beneath the bed, she was on a sleeping bag on the floor in the back bathroom, chained to the toilet. Still not great, but better. Not a box. Not a box. Soon she had to lock herself into the bathroom from the inside because on one occasion, Kathy, who was one of their daughters, had gotten up early and opened the bathroom door to find Kay with the chain around her neck. How old was she? Very young. I don't know exactly how old, but Three? yeah, like she was still very young uh, and I'm sure didn't know what that meant. So she asked if Kay could make her cereal, but Colleen was like, I can't. Maybe go ask daddy if I can, um, which made Cameron extremely angry because he wanted to completely shield his daughters from the horrors of what he was doing, surprisingly enough, because he <laughs> cared about his daughters. So from then on, she had to lock herself inside the bathroom. During this time, Colleen asked Cameron if she could contact her family. And I guess since he was now confident of his control over her, he agreed. He took her outside of town to a payphone and stood next to her as she dialed her father's number. Her sister Bonnie answered, and since it had been so long, she didn't even recognize her voice. She told her it was her sister Colleen, and after a brief emotional conversation, Colleen told her sister she was all right and that she missed everyone. She asked about her family members and learned that her stepmother had a new daughter named Leslie who was now almost three. And her sister was like, where are you? And she said, I'm up north, and that was it. 
and then she had to go. Yeah, I mean, you can't tell them. Yeah. <laughs> During Colleen's year out, despite the victimization, brutalization, abuse, hangings, and rapes, Colleen started expressing love for her captor. And telling him this seemed to soften the mistreatment. Cameron also professed his love for her. He shared his fantasies for, for their future about how they could move to Lake Tahoe together and have children. So that's also something that happened during the year out. But as time went on, Jan and Colleen quarreled constantly, and the tension in the house had reached such heights and irritated Cameron so much that he decided something needed to be done. He told Janice that she would need to quit her job and take care of their children, and Colleen would need to return to the box. But before that, he granted her one last freedom. He told her that she'd be the first slave ever permitted to visit her family. He told Colleen that he'd have to make arrangements with the company and that they'd probably want to test her in advance before getting permission, but he'd do what he could. Before they'd go to Colleen's family, he'd have her say goodbye to all the neighbors and to his daughters just to tell them that she'd be leaving. And after doing that, he had Colleen go back into the box for about a week before they would take the trip down to, his fam to her family. I think this was one of the tests. And then early on, the morning of Friday, March 20th, 1981, Cameron got Colleen out of the box and into the car before the kids were up for school. As they drove, he told her they needed to stop at the company headquarters in Sacramento to make final arrangements. He told her all the phones would be monitored and all the homes and cars were bugged. And since Kay was the first slave ever to be permitted to visit family, the company may want to test her. And they pulled up outside of some tall office buildings, and he told Colleen to sit in the car while he went inside the company headquarters to find out what they wanted to do with her. So she just had to sit in the car and wait and wonder what the fuck they were going to do. After about 15 minutes, he came out and he was like, wow, you got off really easy because they don't want to see you. You're not going to have to do anything. And then he also said that the receptionist said, good luck. There's a receptionist. Yep. As they drove to Riverside, he told Colleen the story she would have to tell her family. He was her boyfriend, Mike. He was dropping her off on his way to San Diego for a computer seminar, and they were engaged. It was a whirlwind of a visit. She was dropped off at her father's house, and her family had no idea what to make of her sudden appearance. They were obviously thrilled but they were hurt and had so many questions about her long absence. But they also didn't want to ask all these questions they had because they didn't want to scare her off. They noticed that she looked pale and tired and unhealthy, but everyone was so happy to see her and they didn't want to say much about it. Her younger sister, Bonnie, asked why she hadn't written to her and Colleen told her that she couldn't. And Bonnie felt like Colleen was trying to tell her something with her eyes, but she was too afraid to pressure her sister. So she let it go. Oh, Saturday. I mean, it's a it's a good impulse, but God, I, I can't even imagine how they feel after that. I know. I mean, you think she's dead, you know? Right. And then you're like, she's not dead. And then you're like, well, did she just abandon us? Did she just did she care about us? Like, why did she just leave? Did we do something? You know? Yeah. So it's just so many questions. How could you not be so hurt? You know, it's just it's like I couldn't even imagine being in that situation. Yeah. 
but Saturday sped by and she was up and gone by 7.30 to go to her mother's house because her parents were divorced. And so she walked the short distance to her house and the two had a long emotional embrace. She told her mom about the babysitting job that sounded like some sort of religious commune. And they spent the afternoon together. They went to church and Colleen left to go back to, I think her father's house, but told her mother that she'd be back to say goodbye. Not long after that, Mike, AKA Cameron, called and told her that it was time to go and that he'd be there in 10 minutes. Colleen was devastated because she thought that she'd get the whole weekend because that's what he told her. But when Mike got there, someone insisted that they get a picture. So they quickly snapped one and they set off again on their long drive back up to Northern California. Thankfully, Colleen convinced him to let her stop by her mother's one last time to say goodbye. But after that, they were gone. They pulled up to the mobile home early Sunday morning. Janice and the kids weren't home. Cameron had Colleen vacuum out the box and put her blanket in it. He had her get back into the box. He handed her a bedpan and bolted the door shut. Colleen's year out came to an abrupt end that day. Except to eat and do Cameron's bidding, Colleen was scarcely ever let out of the box for the next three years. She was completely isolated and wouldn't see relatives, neighbors, or even the hooker children who she shared the same home with until three years later in 1984. And that's the end of part one, my friends. Oh. See, I feel conflicted about this part because I never like two-parters and I'm sure nobody <laughs> really does, but I'm like kind of relieved that I, like this is, we kind of get a break this yeah. is so horrific. Uh-huh. I don't know. I don't know. You just say it in one sentence. Yeah. She was, she scarcely got out of the box for the next three years. But uh-huh. like, that's three years of somebody's yeah. fucking life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a rough one. But I just want to remind everyone. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Listen, hear me out. <laughs> I want to remind everyone that this is a survival story and she makes it out she makes yeah. it out and she is living her life today you know okay yeah waiting for that part we're waiting for that part we are waiting anxiously on that part awaiting that part which will happen next time okay i why don't we transition to the good thing yeah why don't we have a yeah, palate cleanser I, yeah i don't know what else to say about that yeah i mean it, i mean it the story is horrifying we know it i don't know what to say it's just horrifying but let's have a palate cleanser because part one is over happy days let's go happy days sure let's go to palate cleanser what's your good thing i might reuse this have said this earlier but it is my good thing this week that my parents are coming into town tomorrow yep we get to show them around we're gonna do some cool shit yep eat food Uh uh-huh and um golf probably whoa crazy very ambitious week, mm-hmm. but uh, it's going to be fun. I love that. I, oh, I'm taking vacation next week, so yeah, I don't have to work either. That'll be nice. Great time. Mm-hmm. So do you do you have something good about your life you'd like to share I'm with really, the class? I'm really trying to think. We'll show and tell. My good thing is that I figured out what I'm going to be for Halloween, and I'm excited about it because we didn't really get to celebrate Halloween last year. I mean, I guess I kind of did because I dressed up at work, but... I didn't yeah. like, we didn't get to like have fun. You know what I mean? No. Yeah. I'm trying to remember like what we even did. I mean, I, sure I worked. Was, yeah, I know. Sure I was, was Freddy like, Krueger at work. <laughs> <laughs> All 
I'm sure it was uneventful. That's why I don't remember it. But yeah, yeah, highly uneventful. Um, yeah, care to care to share what that is? Oh, it's it's silly. It's <laughs> it's silly. Everyone, have you seen the SpongeBob movie? Cause Anyone? That's where it's from. Where the Gen Z at? Oh Lord, um, it's in the part where they get drunk at the place where they're. The goofy singing, goober. The, singing the goofy goober song. You know when Patrick is wearing fishnets and big high boots? Sexy mm-hmm. Patrick. I'm being sexy, sexy Patrick. That's what's happening. <laughs> Don't steal it. Don't steal it, you bitches. <laughs> um, yeah, and not that I'm, I'm SpongeBob. Not that I'm gatekeeping sexy Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> I thought of it first. <laughs> no, I didn't. I fully got it from other people. All right, anyway. You um, found it on Pinterest. I fully did. Did you actually? Yes. <laughs> Red. You know me. Red to a degree. To a degree? That is high. Good. Yep. Anyway, we hope you come back for part two, guys. Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening. And if you would like to look at the pictures that we post for each of the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you have a story uh, that you would like to share with us or a suggestion of a story, send it to notodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a Twitter that is nottodaypodcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. And we have a TikTok that is nottodaypodcast. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.